0: Somebody said, how do you know you're going to close on time tonight? I said, because we got a 6.15 reservation at Chris, Ruth Chris. I never get to go there. I never get to go there. I think maybe twice in my life, and I'm going tonight, so I will be through by at least 7 o'clock. I will be. T- you know, one of the greatest joys in life our relationships, really. It's a thrill to come here to one of my one of my three or four best friends in the world, and someone I so love and respect, and it's Jacob and his wife Michelle. And uh, I love you, bro. I don't care what others say. You're okay. <laughs> but we go back many years together. <coughs> when he. Uh, When he said, you know, I just want to spend some time with you. I carry your bags or anything. He says, can I just have 20 minutes of your time? So I saw what it was all about because we went over and sat down. I said, okay, we got 20 minutes. He said, could you loan me a dollar for a coffee? (laughs) Anyway, a few nights ago, I was in an interview with a pastor of a very large church. And he said, um... In her interview, can you bring out the historicity of Christianity, that it's a factual faith, that that it's historical? He said, my people are into just faith, that the facts, the truth doesn't really matter as long as you have faith. It's (laughs) it's hard to believe people do think that way, but they do. And uh, he said, would you address the factual issue? And I said, heavens, yes. And that's what I'm going to do this weekend here on the deity of Christ, the scriptures, and the resurrection, my favorite of all talks to give in the resurrection. But um, the theme is this. One of the biggest heresies today, one of the biggest myths propagated by pastors, Christian leaders, Christians all over the world, is this thing of salvation by faith. That's heresy You can't be saved by faith. That's ridiculous. People that keep saying that need to read their Bible and study their Bible. It's impossible to be saved by faith. And yet, everywhere you go, how are you saved? By faith. How are you saved? By faith. And I'm thinking, well, it sounds like you're not saved because you can't be saved by faith. Now, how can you say that? Because I'm biblical. If you can, you will see how silly that is, salvation by faith. If you could be saved by faith, you wouldn't need Jesus. Now think of that. If you could be saved by faith, you wouldn't need Christ. Just build up your faith and be saved. You see, faith does not produce truth. Truth produces faith through the Holy Spirit. The value of faith is not in the one believing, no matter how much you believe, but rather in the one who is believed. The key to faith is not in the one believing, but in the one who is believed. The validity of faith is not in the one exercising the faith, but the validity of your object of your faith. If your object of your faith is not valid, your faith is worthless. I don't care if you're the greatest man or woman of faith in history. Your faith is worthless. Because your faith doesn't give value to the object. The object gives value to your faith. You can't be saved by faith. We're saved by grace, meaning Christ's death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, sent to heaven, and sending the Holy Spirit. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ. You remove the in Christ... And just have "By grace through faith, you're not saved." You see, the value of faith is in its object. It's not faith in a bottle of water. It's not faith in a music stand. You can have all the faith you want. I really believe this music stand It can save me. You, no matter how much you believe, would you have faith of salvation? No. Why? You had the faith. Your object is not valid. This is why it's faith. In Christ. And people say, well, I want to grow. I'm just learning how to even have more and more faith. I said, look, it's very simple. Fall in love with Jesus. No, I really found over life, the more you learn about Jesus, the greater faith God gives you. It's almost parallel. As you learn about Christ, your faith grows. Why? Because you have more trust in your object. Of your faith. This is why it's so important. We have convictions about Christ, not just beliefs. Beliefs is knowing what you believe. A conviction is knowing what you believe and why you believe it. We need convictions about Christ. And that's why I'm so glad that Jacob asked me to speak on Christ tonight, Nadity of Christ. Uh, tomorrow night on the scriptures. And in the third Sunday three times, (laughs) I get to speak on my favorite subject, apart from my wife, the resurrection. The resurrection. And by the time we finish Sunday at noon, I want each one of you to have a greater understanding about Jesus, the scriptures, and the resurrection. And you can literally say by Sunday night you have a greater faith. Your faith has grown. You can't be saved by faith. Remember the book? Oh, it was so popular. The Da Vinci Code. Remember that? I mean, when it hit, everybody was talking about, pastors, everyone. Professors quoted it in the classrooms. Classrooms. A totally fictional book. And I wrote another book on it just to show it was all lies. But I documented mine. And yet they quoted it. I'd be speaking to university and they'd interrupt me and say, Well, haven't you read the Da Vinci Code? Intellectual professors would ask that question. It just amazes me. And the Da Vinci Code. Dan Brown said, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet and a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless, but a man nonetheless. I cannot tell you how many Christians lost their faith through the Da Vinci Code. It's the one book apart from the Bible In all the countries I've been into, I haven't been in a country that at that time the Da Vinci Code wasn't quoted to me. Is it true that he was a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless? Peter claimed Jesus was God. He said none of his followers ever called him God or anything. just looked at him as a mere mortal man. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, There was a lot of rumors going on, a lot of gossip out there about who is this man, Jesus? Well, I think he's this, he's that. And they were all talking about it. So Jesus said to his disciples, who did people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others, Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then in Jesus' manner, he said to them, okay, who do you say that I am? See, it always comes down to the individual. He says, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, no kidding. No, he didn't say that. No, he said, blessed are you, Simon bar because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Reveal what? That I am the Christ the Son of God. Then who did? But my Father who is in heaven. Now folks, even in Louisiana, that's clear. That's clear. When I study history to prove or refute something or find out the truth of something, I always look for positive testimony from hostile sources. You say, what do you mean? I want to get, is there positive testimony from those who hated you? They're hostile, but they give a testimony of the positiveness of what you're saying. When you get your enemies to do that in a court of law, you're on pretty good, <laughs> pretty good foundation with the judge and with the jury when your opponent agrees with you. and Here were the high priests and the scribes who despise Christ. Then the high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? I got ahead of myself. I'm sorry, folks. I looked one line too late. In the same way, the chief priests and also the scribes and elders were mocking him and saying, He saved others? He trusts in God on the cross. Let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, for he said, Now, here are the enemies of Christ confirming something that Christ said. For he said, I am the Son of God. In any court of law, that'd be positive evidence. I am the Son of God. And then at the trial of Jesus, you know, isn't it a unique trial? Most people are tried for what they did. Jesus was tried for who he was. Did you ever catch that? Go back over and read the trial of Jesus. He was tried for who he was, not what he did. Then the high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? And Jesus wouldn't answer, and he'd say it again, and he wouldn't answer, and he'd say it again, and he wouldn't answer it. And finally, the high priest probably slammed his fist down the table and said, I've had it. And then he said this to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. When he did that, when he said, I adjure you by the living God, according to Jewish law, he put Jesus under oath. So he had to answer. After refusing to answer so many times, he had to answer. And all Jesus said was, I am. I am. And yet, Da Vinci's Code says, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless. Martha claimed he was God. Jesus and Martha had an interaction together. And then Jesus said, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Boy, that's clear. Nathanael claimed he was God. Jesus said to him, before Philip called you. When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. The writers of the Hebrews claimed he was, I don't know how Dan Brown could ever have even perused the New Testament and come up with the Da Vinci Code. It's so intellectually dishonest. The writer of Hebrews said, but the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Even doubting Thomas claimed he was God. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Paul claimed Jesus was God, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. His followers, apart from the New Testament, were convinced. Ignatius of Antioch said, God incarnate, God himself appearing in the form of man. Pliny the Younger was sent by the emperor to check out these Christians, find out who are they, what do they believe, what are they doing, are they a threat? And so Pliny the Younger went, and when he came back and reported to the emperor, he said, these Christians were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day when they sang a hymn to Christ as to a god. Jesus said, if you'd known me, you would have known my Father. Why? Because I and the Father are one. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Why? Because I and the Father are one. He that has seen me is seen the Father. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. People say to him, look, Jesus, we want to know the Father. He said, if you know me, you know the Father. How obnoxious can you be unless that's the truth? I mean, think how arrogant you would have to be. We want to see the Father. Well, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Boy, that is the epitome of arrogancy and self-centeredness. Or it's the truth. Or it's the truth. This might seem strange, but I struggled with that. Here here is one of the struggles I went through, and this argument was developed by C.S. Lewis. Jesus claimed to be God, in spite of what Dan Brown said. I'm convinced of that. I'm convinced of that intellectually, not just emotionally. So Jesus claimed to be God. I faced two alternatives. Now, folks, it's going to get a little complicated, so very slowly followed through with me on this. Jesus claimed to be God. That gave me two alternatives. His claims were false or his claims were true. If his claims were false, it gave me two alternatives. He knew his claims were false or he didn't know his claims were false. Now that led to a problem because if he knew his claims were false, then he made a deliberate misrepresentation. That would mean he was a liar. If he was a liar, he was a hypocrite. If he was a hypocrite, let me tell you, he was a demon. And if he was a demon, then he was a fool because he went out and died for it. C.S. Lewis addressed an issue that every one of you hear all the time. I hear it all the time from professors, everyone. They would say, well, Jesus was just a good man. He was a great prophet. Listen C.S. Lewis. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about us being a great human teacher. I finally woke up to the truth. He never left that alternative to me. He never left the alternative to me to call him a good man, just a mere good man, or a good prophet, a righteous man. He never left that. To claim what he claimed about himself, that your eternal destiny is dependent upon how you're related to me, if that wasn't true, He was one of the most deliberate, misrepresented liars, fools, and demons that ever walked the face of the earth. I will forgive your sins. You are forgiven, my daughter. You are forgiven, my son. Jesus claimed to be God. Well, maybe he did not know his claims were false. So that would mean he was sincerely deluded. And now, folks, think it through. If he was deluded, then he was a lunatic. An unlovable man today that would call himself a poached egg. No, there'd be no difference. Otherwise, his claims were true. And if his claims were true, then the only alternative you have is he was Lord. I was confronted with this as a non-believer. I couldn't call him a liar. Because, folks, if he was a liar, a lie has accomplished more good than the truth ever has. I couldn't call him a lunatic. Come on, folks, if he was a lunatic, what about you and me? He was the most sound man that ever walked the face of the earth. I picked up a graduate student who was a hitchhiker in Long Beach, California. As I started to share Christ with him, they said, you sound a lot like my professor. And I said, what did your professor say? He said, he was teaching yesterday that Jesus Christ is the most sound person that ever lived. He said, one of the most sound sayings ever is the Sermon on the Mount. So I had a problem here. I had a dilemma now. If his claims are true, he is of the Lord. I can either accept it or I can reject it. As soon as I walk away and don't make a decision, I already made a decision to reject it. Boy, that's, that's pretty serious ground to walk on. You say, well, this is so simple, I know. But I'll tell you folks, it was profound to me. Because I could not call him a liar. I knew he wasn't a lunatic but I refuse to call him Lord because Jesus did not have a place in my future. You cannot put him on the shelf merely as a great moral teacher or prophet. That is not a valid option. And I hear people doing that all the time. He is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord and God. You must make a choice. I thought I had a way out. I thought I had a way out. There's no evidence for it. There's no evidence for him being Lord. Woo! You talk about having to swallow your pride. I've written 150 books on the evidence. I've probably documented the evidence probably just about more than anyone else. I don't know if i written enough books with that many documentations in it and everything on the truth of Christianity, the resurrection, etc., My phone is ringing. Oh, it's the White House. (laughs) But They need help answering. Is there any evidence for it? Now, folks, I could very easily sit up here without any notes or anything, sit in a stool for 50 hours straight and talk about evidence and not repeat myself. There's that much of it. Now, one time I never believed that. But there's just one little piece of it. It's a big piece of evidence, but I don't time to share a little piece of it today. It's something that Christ constantly appealed to, but few people do. I've never heard a sermon on it, except mine. I've never heard a sermon on it. I don't know if you ever have, Jacob, or anyone else. Jesus appealed to Old Testament prophecy. In the Old Testament... 300, I documented 333 prophecies about who the coming Messiah would be. It was like writing an address because God wanted people to recognize his son. In more than a 500 year gap, proven historically, it's more like a thousand year gap but you can prove accurately, document historically, a 500-year gap from any of these prophecies being written down and their fulfillment in Christ. 500 years, 333 of them. For example, now I'm leaving a lot out here, folks, but you'll get the point. Starts out, the Messiah be born in the seed of the woman. Why that? Everyone else about it was referred to as the seed of the man. Why the seed of the woman? The virgin birth? Did you ever catch that? The virgin birth. He'll be born in see the seed of a woman. Then of all the lineages, he'll be of the lineage of Shem. God narrows it down further. And then of, this, uh, of eight children, he'll be of the descendants of Abraham. Then he narrows it down says he'll be of the line of Isaac. Then he narrows it down further, be of the line of Jacob. Then he drives it the 12 tribes. He eliminates 11 of them. So. The Messiah be of the tribe of Judah. Then he'll be of the family tree of Jesse. And then he narrows it down further, will be of the house of David. Then narrows it down further. Can you imagine the historical probability here? He'll be crucified. Then he'll be betrayed by a friend. He'll be, he'll be sold out for 30 pieces, not $29.99, not 31. 30 pieces, not of gold, of silver. It won't be placed in a table like normally would. It will be thrown on the floor. This will be 500 years before it happened. It will be in the temple. And it will be used to buy a burial plot. And. He'll be born in the city of Bethlehem Ephraim. Do you know when that prophecy was made. There weren't even a thousand people living in Bethlehem. Of all the cities in the world. And it said the temple will still be Standing. When all 333 prophecies are fulfilled. When was the temple destroyed? Anyone? 70 A.D. AD. Part of the prophecy was all 333 prophecies would be fulfilled before 70 A.D. You know what the probability of these prophecies is? I have to say, of all my research in history, this was one of my most fun part. Because usually when I research, I kind of know what the answer is going to be, but I got to prove it. With this one, I had no idea. It was like every hour, a new discovery, a new, I call them wows. Wow. Wow. Let me show you what I mean. This was all worked out. Books had been written on it. The probability just eight of these prophecies, not all 333, not 50 of them, not 30 of them, just eight of these prophecies could be shown in any man to be written down 400 years before he was born and detailed fulfilling in his life. Just eight of them to be fulfilled in one person using a modern science of probability. I needed the pros to do that. Would be one in every... 10 to the 17th power. That's 10 with 17 zeros. Now, if you understand that, you understand the national debt. And trust me, none of us understand the national debt. One in every 10 times, one in 10 to the 17th power. I had to get that down where I could grasp it. So this is some of the pros. They did it this way. Take the state of Texas. I spent a wonderful night there one week. (laughs) You know how Texans always boast. (laughs) I was in England. There was this Texan going on. Texas is so big. Man, you could get in a train and travel for seven days, and you'll still be in Texas. And the Englishman said, Oh, mister, I know what you mean. We have the same problem with our trains, (laughs) but they don't. (laughs) Take the entire state of Texas, two feet deep of silver dollars, two feet deep, just keep stacking them up, two feet, the entire state of Texas. Take one silver dollar, put a red check on it, make it blue if you prefer blue, but put a check on it. Then drop it into Texas somewhere. Use bulldozers, back hoses, whatever you want. Mix up the entire state of Texas. Take a man or a woman in El Paso. Blindfold them. Let that blindfolded person start wading through that two feet deep of silver dollars for a minute, for an hour, for a day, for a week, for a month, for a year just wading through it blindfolded. You know you're out of Texas and there's no more silver dollars. And then just randomly he stops or she stops, totally blindfolded, reaches down, and just grabs the silver dollar out of the entire state of Texas. Takes off his blindfold. The probability in his first pick he would pick, the check silver dollar, is the same probability that only eight of these prophecies could be fulfilled in one individual. I wish I had time to show you what, if 48 of them were fulfilled. It's mind-boggling. You have to get to degrees that we can't even think of with the human brain. But the greatest prophecy of all, I haven't mentioned. In Ezekiel 36, verse 26... God gave the greatest prophecy. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Whew. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. Kind of sounds like 2 Corinthians 5.18, doesn't it? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, all became New. I believe I am a walking example of the fulfillment of that prophecy. I set out to write, yeah, here it is. I set out to write this huge book. Man, it's big. It weighs a ton. Um, I set out to write this book, Evidence of Man's a Verdict Against Christianity. I was so mad at these Christians and I was gonna prove to them they were wrong. I even left the university to do it. I'd made a lot of money my first two years in university, a lot of money, and I traveled out the United States, England, Germany, France, Switzerland, and the Middle East, gathering the evidence to write this book. I was returning home from the Middle East, and I had to stay overnight in London to catch, remember the little 707s, to catch the 707 flight home. And I went to this museum library it was a small museum, had a good library with a lot of manuscripts in it. Because one of the things I was showing was if I could show that the manuscripts of the Bible were not reliable, my case was one. Why? The Bible was based on the manuscripts. That was common sense to me. And so I went there and I'll never forget I got so frustrated. And I sat there and I leaned back in my chair, and right in front of everyone, it's probably three people. I just said right out loud, it's true! It's true! It's true! And the traditional madam librarian said, shh! <laughs> and that's when I realized I'd lost my battle to refute it. And I gotta tell you, I wasn't the happiest guy in the world either. Because Jesus was still not gonna play a part in my future. Finally, I couldn't sleep. It was affecting my grades, everything, at the end of my second year in university. And so that December the 19th, at 8.30 at night, towards the second year in the university, I became a Christian. Somebody said, How do you know? I was there. It <laughs> changed my life. I got along with a friend of mine, made sure my other friends weren't watching. I had a reputation upholding. I prayed four things that I'm now convinced to establish a relationship with the living God through his son, Jesus Christ. Four things. I said, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. The most humbling thought I've ever had is when I realized it was on a Saturday night in my dorm room that if I were the only person alive, Jesus still would have died for me. Gosh, I still get chills thinking of that. The only other thing that challenged my thinking that way was this, when I realized that the God creator of the universe wants me to spend eternity with him. Now think of that, same thing's true of you. I can't explain that intellectually that the God created the universe wants to spend eternity with me, Josh McDowell. Second, I knew the Bible was true. I don't just believe the Bible's true; I know why it's true. But I knew there were things in the Bible I didn't like. Oh, boy! It used to irritate me when I read things like "For all of sin that comes short of the glory of God." I didn't like that. I thought I was a pretty nice guy, unless I was mad at you, and then that was your problem, not mine. But I knew the Bible was true. So I said, forgive me. I really didn't know what I was doing, folks. I would never been to a Bible study or anything. I just said, God, I confess my sins. Forgive me. I didn't list my sins out either. But he must have known my heart. Third, again, I knew the Bible was true. And I knew the Bible said, but to as many as received him. Not to as many as knew about it, not to as many as was sincere, not to as many as went to church, but to as many as received him, to them gave you the right to become a child of God. Now, come on, folks. never been to Bible study, no theological teaching, anything else. How in the world did he receive Jesus? I had no idea. And then someone shared in me Revelation 3.20. Oh, did it make sense to me? Because I was thinking, well, I don't know where to receive Je- Jesus. Jesus said, I stand the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. And I said, Well, that makes sense. To receive Jesus, you gotta invite him to come in, to invite him to come in. You gotta ask him and want him. So right there I just said, God, come in on my life. Jesus I remember saying, take the throne of my life. And then, before I went to the third point, fourth point of it, I said, Lord, make me the person you created me to be. And the last thing I prayed, the fourth thing was, it was just, thank you. Just, thank you. Nothing happened. There wasn't any bolt of lightning, folks. I didn't sprout wings. In fact, something did happen. I felt like I was gonna chuck my cookies. I really thought I was gonna throw up. Because immediately here, I mean, this is so crazy. No, it's dumb. I had come to the conclusion intellectually through being led by the Holy Spirit, that God is, Christ is his son that his son came to earth, died on the cross for my sins, was buried, raised again the third day, ascended to heaven, and sent the Holy Spirit. I knew that was true, and yet I was afraid of what my friends would say. Now, think of that in life, isn't that dumb? But I didn't know any better then. I didn't have the faith to understand in the background, and so I just said, Lord Jesus, come into my life, thank you. Nothing happened overnight, but in about six months or a year and a half, my entire life was changed. My entire life. One of the first things that happened, now this might not even be even relevant to you, to me it was. I was very, very self-centered, a lot of the way I was brought up. And in school, I ascended grade-wise, I ascended in sports, everything. And after I trusted Christ, (laughs) I can laugh at this now. One of the first things that I knew something had happened in my life, I would catch myself thinking of someone else first. Isn't that crazy? I would be thinking, Not what can I get, but what can I give? Not how can I use someone, how can I be used? That's the first thing that God showed me in my life, that it was real. Folks, he is risen. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. I concluded he claimed to be God. That didn't prove to me that he was God. But that brought up the trilemma. Was he a liar, a lunatic, or Lord and God? I couldn't call him a liar. I knew he wasn't a lunatic, but I refused to call him Lord. And then I was confronted with that dilemma. I could either accept it or reject it. And I struggled with that for quite a time back and forth. And I'm so thankful that through several of my friends and a group that I saw, and their lives were so different, I wanted to know them and what made them different, and it was Jesus. That that December the 19th at 8.30 at night, I didn't break down. I came to my senses, and I placed my trust in Jesus, and all I said is, Jesus, forgive me. Come into my life. Make me the person you created me. Thank you that I can trust you. Folks, if you don't know Christ personally, don't walk away from him. Probably there's not a person here that doesn't know what you need to do. If you do know Christ, which probably most of you do, by the way you live and the way you talk, give others a choice. Give others a choice. My goal is not to lead people to Christ. That's Holy Spirit's job. My goal is to make it so clear, and to call for until you call for a decision, you haven't witnessed. That's my goal. If I make the issue clear, and I call for a decision, then I have been successful. Whether they come to Christ or not, that's not my job. That's the Holy Spirit. But I need to be obedient to what He's called me to do, and I believe God wants you to be obedient. So give people a choice. That means you don't shove it down their throat because then it's not a choice. This book out there can be so helpful. I set out to write this against Christianity and when I became a Christian, I spent 13 years documenting historically why it's true and the resurrection of the of Christ, everything. Probably almost every question you've ever had about Christianity is documented answered in here, except on evolution. I'd take another book this size. And then there's three books I always dreamed why? I call them the Coffeehouse House Chronicles. Is the Bible true? Really? Who is Jesus? Really? Did the resurrection happen? Really? These are books that I'd recommend each one of you to read. It won't take you very long but I'll guarantee you won't read any book this small that is so documented. And then use these to give to friends. Then the book, Morna Carpenter. I wrote this book for people to give away. Took me 42 hours, and everyone went to the... You remember this, Dottie. Where'd my wife go? Oh, there you are. (laughs) You remember when I wrote this, don't you? It was at Larry Shepard's condominium in Chicago. I wrote in 42 hours, never went to sleep, never closed my eyes as best I could and just wrote and wrote and wrote for 42 hours. Never knowing it become one of the most read books in history. You give this book to six businessmen, two will come to Christ. Give it to six university students, two will come to Christ. Give it to six professors, two will come to Christ. Give it to six women. One will come to Christ. Uh, anyway, folks, thank you for letting me share this. I was sitting back there between the two services, and, and uh, I was alone. I was just thinking, what a privilege it is for each one of us to be able to share But the creator God wants a relationship with you. I got so so excited back there. And then the wind was taking out of my sails. Jacob walked in and said, well, we're ready to go the second time. And get to do it again, thanks to Jacob. So folks, you can go to josh.org. No! I'm going to be sending my entire talk. The whole PowerPoint, which is about three times larger than this one. To Jacob and within three to four days it'll be up on the church's website I'd rather have you go there than go to my site and so you can go there and get it and I want to say this I live in Southern California uh South Orange County in Dana Point and it's been so good being back here if you get out there and maybe you don't have anything to eat you lost your money Maybe you're like Jesus, no place to lay your head. Look me up. I'm in the phone book. Call me, and I'll pray for you. God bless.